we're in our series in the book of 2 Corinthians, kind of shift in the theme now. We kind of went from generosity. Now we're going to go at what does it look like to be a Christian leader as Paul is, depend- is uh, defending his apostolic authority. Hear God's word with me, starting 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 1. It says this, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but a bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that, you, uh, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take, thought, uh, take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your Corinthians' obedience is complete. I was in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, and the Civil Rights Movement was on the brink of defeat. At this point of the civil rights movement, there was only about 10 to, to 12 people showing up to these marches. And on top of that, John F. Kennedy was beginning to make a deal with Martin Luther King Jr. that he would leave Alabama defeated. So there's a lot of tension in the air. Well, it was in April and May of this, of 1963, that Martin Luther King Jr. and a man by the name of James Bevel began to make the controversial decision to allow children to begin to march. The parents didn't want this to happen. Parents of these children already have lost their jobs because they were involved and they already went through so much turmoil, but these protests weren't really making a difference, so they thought, why would you put us through the headache of having us have to go bail our children out of jail? Although they still made the controversial decision to allow these children to, to be able to march. And let me tell you, it made all the difference in the world. Again, up to this point, there was only about 10 to 12 people marching. But from May 2nd, when they made this decision, as children begin to march, they begin to have thousands and thousands show up in the civil rights movement. From the month on, from May 2nd to June 2nd, a thousand demonstrations broke across the nation. It, it went from this kind of a local affair to now a national affair. And we asked the question, what made the difference? It was the children. You see, from this point on, the nation was looking in and they were saying, yes, somebody should do something about this segregation. When they saw six-year-olds march. And they saw 12-year-olds march. 17-year-old march and, and have hoses turned on them and dogs turned on them. It was no longer somebody should do something about this, but I must do something about this. And as you're watching and studying the civil rights movement, it's almost shocking to understand that, that King's letter from a Birmingham jail at this point really was an overlooked letter. People ignored it. Nobody cared. So what made the change? It was the children. It was that the meekness of these children began to to uproot the racism that was so prevalent in in the nation's heart. It was the weakness of these children that began to to uproot the apathy that was so prevalent in so many hearts. It was these children that radically transformed a nation's heart. And you ask and you study and you look and you say, really, children? 
Children are the ones who made the difference. See, God has always used the, un, the most unusual heroes and used them in the most unusual ways to be able to transform his people's hearts. This is what he's been doing from the beginning and, and what he will do to the end because this has been God's way from the very beginning using unusual heroes in the most unusual ways to transform people's hearts. In fact, when you and I begin to turn and look at the beginning of Scripture, we see this theme over and over again, unusual heroes in unusual ways. Remember Jericho? You mean to tell me that God is going to call his people to, to march around Jericho and toot their horns and, and the walls are going to come down? You mean to tell me that you want me to turn in my weapons for this brass ensemble and that's the way that God is going to defeat the enemy? And God says, yes. The most unusual way. And then there's the most unusual heroes. You have Rahab, a prostitute. You have Esther, this unusual hero of this beauty queen turned to save the nation, the people of, of God, the Jews. And then you turn to the New Testament and you see this ragtag group of individuals of the disciples. Who, may, who, who are we? How many of us would actually turn and say, this is the group we want to use to be able to spread the message of the gospel? The tax collector, fishermen, people who had tempers. Again, from the very beginning, God has used the most unusual heroes in the most unusual ways. And as we turn to our text, let me tell you, there's not more of an unusual man than the man named Paul. Now, I know we like to lift him up as well as we should. After all, he's the one who wrote the, the majority of the books within the New Testament. But let me tell you, specifically in Corinth, he was a hated man. We see in Corinth that that Paul simply didn't fit the standard or the cultural expectation of what a leader should be. Paul was an unusual character. And let me tell you, I don't think Paul would fit into our culture standard of leadership. In fact, I believe if Paul was going to lead some churches, he would receive the same pushback as he received in Corinth as he would today. It really is a shame. Because it goes to show you that we're still mightily confused on who God chooses to use and the ways he chooses to use his people to transform people's hearts. See, our God is, from the very beginning, has always been beautifully strange. And the leaders he chooses and the ways he goes about, and it's about time that we begin to see how that takes place. Because this morning as we enter, enter into our text, what we begin to see is immediately the problem these men had with Paul. Again, he didn't fit the standard of what their expectation looked like for a man to be in leadership. And what gets me in this, though, is as they're lobbying these accusations against him, what I begin to see is, why isn't the Corinthian churches standing up for him? These lies begin to spread and people were buying into them. And nobody's really coming to Paul's defense, which is forcing Paul for the next three chapters to have to defend his authority within the church of Corinth. He's going about this, and there's some, there's some great things in this text as we begin to see as he's beginning to call his people to understand that, again, God uses unusual people 
most unusual ways to transform his people's hearts. Again, verse 1, to begin, we begin to see immediately their problem. Yes, they had a problem because Paul didn't fit the cultural standard of, of what a leader should look like. But, but what was their evidence of this? It shows us in verse 1, their problem was that Paul was a man who, in his letters, was mightily bold. But when face to face, here was a, a man who, which they would call a scaredy cat. A man who, as the distance between him and Corinth begin to grow, you begin to see his boldness increase. This is what they were saying of Paul, but yet when he's, in present, with, uh, when he's present with them, he wasn't bold. He wasn't showing his authority. He wasn't showing his leadership. And they were saying, what is this man going to do? They said he was too weak. Too scared to confront them. Too meek for their standards. He simply, again, didn't meet the cultural standards of what a leader should look like in Corinth. And because of this, they were trying to convince the Corinthian church to, to not follow Paul anymore, but to follow them as these super apostles or these false teachers that were kind of saying these things within Corinth. But the question we ask now is, what was their reasoning for this? Why, why were they pushing the, the, them away from Paul and, and into themselves? Again, we, we see that he didn't fit the cultural standards, but I think there's a deeper issue. That it's their pride. They didn't want to submit to Paul's authority. God's ordained authority that he placed over them, there's this pride within them that's saying, hey, we're not going to submit. So what did they do? They began to spread rumors among the crew that Paul was not a good leader. They begin to spread rumors among the crew, spreading it among the church of Corinth that they should get a different leader. Paul wasn't the man they should have. He wasn't adequate. He wasn't equipped to be able to lead this church, so therefore they should turn to him. And what gets me in all of this, again, it's their pride. They, they didn't want to submit. And the question we ask ourselves is, why is it so difficult for us to submit to God-ordained authority over our lives? especially for the American person. Man, we don't like to submit to anything or anyone. We just don't like doing it. The word, the word submission kind of raises the hairs on the back of our neck. But as you look throughout the news today, we see the devastation this is causing within our nation. Because none of us want to submit. What do we see? You open up the news and what do you see? You see people storming the Capitol building. You see today that, that now we're surrounding Supreme Court justices' houses in this crazy mob. You see people beating up refs and umpires. You, you see students fighting with their teachers. Where, where does it lead when the nation fails to submit to God-ordained authority over their lives? It leads to chaos. It leads to anarchy. It leads to everybody doing what's right in our own eyes. It leads to the book of Judges. Well, we don't have to turn far to see the danger. Just open up the book of Judges and you see everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Nobody wanting to submit to any authority. And it leads to chaos. So, so Paul in these next three chapters, he's going to show us the joy of what it looks like to us to submit to God-ordained authority over our lives. He's going to say, this is for our good. This, is, this should be our joy because it is for our good. And us who, who are people who submit to the Lordship of Jesus, should we not be the most respectful followers there are? Should, should we not be those who joyfully submit to God-ordained authority over our lives, even, even when we choose to disagree with the leader's decisions? 
In fact, as we look and we, we understand that, that, yes, because there's been so many kind of bad leaders over us, we have this knee-jerk reaction to now not to submit to them. But Paul says, no, even in the midst of bad leadership, we should still submit in joy because it's for our good. But what scares me about the false teachers, these super apostles within Corinth, was they begin to coat their kind of rebellion in this religious facade. What, what gets me about it, what's so scary, is these, these super apostles, these false teachers were coming in and saying, hey, we're doing you good, Corinthian church. We're protecting you from this leader, Paul. We're the ones who are in the right. We're the ones who are following God. We're the ones who are protecting you from this crazy leader named Paul. And again, that should scare us in the sense of how easily, how easily that the crowds are willing to fall suit and rebel against their leaders if simply just rumors begin to spread amidst the midst. They heard it and they're listening and they're saying, yes, you're the ones who are following us and Paul is saying no. In fact, just look at verse two and again, you begin to see what they're saying about Paul. We'll come back to Paul's response in verse 2 in just a second, but notice what they're saying again in verse 2. It says, I beg you, beg of you, that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who catch this, who suspect us of walking according to the flesh, that accuse us of walking according to the flesh. What, what does it mean to walk according to the flesh? Well, Paul usually uses the flesh in the sense of this God's historical narrative of redemption, and he used it in the sense of anything before having the Holy Spirit. That's how he usually uses this word flesh, but in this case, he's using it in somewhat a different way. He's simply saying what these people were accusing Paul of is that he was of the flesh. He was this ordinary leader. He was this man who, who wasn't like them, the super apostles who were spirit-filled, who, who had the ability to lead in this extravagant fashion. So in other words, they're saying he just wasn't an, uh, uh, an adequate leader. He was of the flesh, the ordinary kind. He wasn't, he wasn't one who was superly equipped to be able to lead his people. They said he shouldn't lead because, of again, he was, uh, wasn't bold when he was present with them. They said he shouldn't lead, as we'll see in chapter 12, because he didn't have these supernatural kind of uh, uh, revelation or, or visions. They said he couldn't lead because he didn't have this elegant rhetoric being able to speak out. They said he couldn't lead because he didn't fit their cultural standard of what leaders are all about. He was the ordinary kind. He, he was this, this less than leader, and because of this, again, they're trying to shift the church away from Paul and unto their own leadership. But I love Paul's response as we see it within the passage. Again, because the Corinthians aren't defending Paul, Paul is now forced to defend his own authority and leadership within the church. But I love how he responds. In fact, the argument that he lays forth in verses 1 through 6 is very simple, if we understand the irony that Paul writes in and the sarcasm that he writes these next six verses in. It's full of sarcasm and irony, and we see it immediately in verse 1. Again, what are they saying? Saying he wasn't bold. He wasn't, he wasn't one who was willing to confront them. He's too scared to be in front of them, to be this leader. So what does he respond with? Verse 1, I, Paul, myself entreats you by the meekness and gentleness 
of Jesus Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Catch the sarcasm and, and kind of the zinger he throws these false teachers away. That word humble, as he says, as he's kind of just repeating what they're saying, I who am humble, that word humble can really be translated in, in the sense of timidity, the sense of fear. Again, what they're saying is he, he was this timid, this scaredy cat leader who wasn't willing to present this kind of bold front when he's present with them. So what does he write? He says, I entreat you with the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus Christ. Do you see the sarcasm in this? He's saying, I don't fit your culture standard of what a leader is, what is a leader about, but how about Jesus? Does Jesus fit your standard of leadership? I entreat you with the gentleness and meekness of Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is he's saying, hey, if, if I don't fit the standard of leadership that your culture kind of puts forward, does Jesus fit the standard of what a leader should be all about? Does Jesus fit your standard? See, what he's trying to do in these next six verses, he needs them to understand that the cultural kind of standard of what a, leadership, uh, what a leader is about, if your leadership model goes contrary to, to the character of Jesus, not only should you not turn to it, but Paul says it's sinful. In fact, we see as he's writing this letter, he says these are people who are preaching a different Jesus. That they're preaching a different gospel. So this wasn't just a matter of opinion. He's saying, hey, you're, you're confronting a God-ordained authority that God has placed over your life. And you're doing it in the sense that I don't fit your leadership standard. He's saying that it's, that's not just, this, just a kind of a, a, a difference of opinion. He's saying, no, you are sinful. And yet how many times in our own culture, as we, the American people, begin to put more trust in our leadership kind of models and formations than we do in the mysterious ways of how our God works? How many times do we buy into all these leadership books Leadership books are not sinful of themselves, but when we put more trust and more faith in these things as the way God moves and transforms people's heart, we have a problem. In fact, true story, I remember at this, uh, this other church that I used to work at, my pastor uh, called me to watch this YouTube video. This YouTube video was supposed to give me confidence. It was supposed to kind of move me to, to be less meek and me more of a strong leader. I was supposed to put my chest out and put my arms in this V formation before I preached or went, before I went into a leader. And this YouTube video, I'm watching it. Why did it wanted me to do this? Because this is what the monkeys do. True story. Watching this video on, on monkeys, how they put their chest out and put their arms in this V formation, and this is what was supposed to lead me to greater confidence. And maybe your standard of, and model of, of what a leader should look like is not as crazy as that. But the question we still have to ask ourselves is, what am I putting my greater faith in? The American church is all about pragmatism. What we see work for others' people, we begin to put into motion. But yet, if you look at Scripture, God works in mysterious ways. Again, he tells Jericho, to, or the people of Israel, to march around Jericho, and that's how what's going to make the walls come down. He tells the disciples to go out and begin to, to heal by touching their cloak. It just doesn't make sense. God uses the most unusual leaders. And he uses them in the most unusual ways so that he 
can receive all the glory. Not the leader. See, what Paul needs us to understand is that his power is not coming from himself, but his power is coming from the gospel. And we begin to see this as he begins to play it out in verses 2 through 4. Where is our faith? Is our faith in some weird leadership model that we have, or is it in the strange and mysterious ways our God works? Again, the leadership models are not sinful of themselves, but when we begin to place greater faith in these than we do in how our God works, we have a major problem. Like what he says in verses 2 through 4. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So, so notice what he's saying there in, in verse 2 first. First of all, he says, hey, I beg you guys, clean up your act, push aside these false teachers and super apostles, don't listen to what they're saying, fall back under to my God-ordained authority over the church so that I don't have to show up in boldness when I arrive. But notice that he says he's willing to show up in boldness and to discipline these false teachers and those who are listening to these false teachers when he arrives. But then he goes about and he says, hey, catch the sarcasm again in verse 2 to 3. What he's saying here is he's saying, if I have to show up, if I have to show up in boldness to those who call me that say I walk according to the flesh, catch it in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, what he's saying is, hey, you're saying that I'm this weak leader who's walking in the flesh, this ordinary kind of side of the life. He says, my weapon, my warfare, though, is not ordinary. It's not of the flesh. It's of divine power, as we'll see in verse 4. He's using this sarcasm, kind of flipping it on their head with them. He says, you guys are the ones who's using this warfare of the flesh. What was their warfare of the flesh? It's their strong kind of personalities, this kind of persuasion they put forth through their kind of good speaking skills and their rhetoric. He's saying this is what you think is all the power. This is what you think is of the divine. He's saying that's not of the divine, that's of the flesh. But notice what he plays with. Paul turns to them and he says, hey, your, your, your world and cultural standard is not what we should ultimately put our pace in, but our culture, leadership styles and models can't transform people's hearts. He says the gospel can transform people's hearts. He's saying your, your standard of rhetoric is not what is able to transform people's hearts, but it's the gospel. Our weapons of our divine power he says, I'm not, not going to throw, the, the, I'm not going to use the same kind of warfare that you're going about. But you who claim we walk according to the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our war, warfare are not of the flesh. But what do they have? They have divine power. Divine power to do what? Divine power to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Here they were saying, Paul is weak. Paul says, no. Me and of myself, yes, I'm weak, but I use divine power that comes through my gospel ministry. 
What made Paul such a strong leader again was his God. What made Moses such a strong leader was his God. Just look at Moses at the beginning of how when he got called. And he has a stuttering problem. He didn't believe in God's power. He turns to his brother to be his speaker. Here's a man who had identity problems, who's seeking the question, who am I? Who are you, God? I mean, he was a mess. So, so why are we studying the leadership style of Moses when it was his God who made all the difference in the world? Look at King David. I mean, you look at King David's house. It was a mess. How was he able to lead his people? It came when he came into submission and trust of his great big God. Why was Paul able to lead and lead his people? Because he came in obedience to his big God and believed it was his God who was going to make the difference in his life. God uses the most unusual people in the most unusual way so that he can receive all the glory. So what does Paul say? He says, if you guys really want to go to battle against me, my gospel ministry has the power to demolish every argument. It has the power to destroy, it has the power to take captive, and it has the power to punish. Three things in those last couple of verses. It has the power to destroy, has the power to take captive, and has the power to punish. Look at what he says again. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The imagery here is, is what he's saying. is he's, he's literally saying these people, because they're unwilling to submit to, to godly authority in their lives, are putting walls up against the knowledge of God. So they're going to battle against Paul. He's using warfare terms. And what does he say? He says the gospel has the ability to, to demolish these kind of lofty opinions that have. You see the irony again? Here's people who called themselves the super apostles. People who thought they were lofty. And he says, my gospel ministry has the ability to, to, to destroy those walls, these lofty, you come crashing down. And then he says, not only does it have the power to destroy these lofty arguments that you're putting forward, these leadership styles of the culture, but he says next, it has the ability to tear down, or it has the ability to take captive. So Paul's ministry, it tears down, it takes captive. It takes captive every sinful thought pattern, every rebellious worldview, and brings it in line to become obedient and submissive to Christ. So catch the warning he's giving his church. He's saying when you come, when, when you have these, these kind of these sinful, rebellious ways, if you simply just come back to Jesus, you'll be held captive and be brought back into obedience. But notice how they come back into obedience under Jesus. is when they once again submit to Paul's authority over their lives and his gospel ministry. You see that? What he's saying is, hey, when you come back into obedience, that's why he says in verse 6, I need you first to be obedient. He calls his church to come back into line. And he concludes with saying he will punish every disobedient act as well. So again, there's this warning to his church. He says, again, this is not just a, a difference of opinion. He says, I need you to submit to, to my gospel ministry. I need you to submit to this God-ordained authority over your life. Why? Because it's for your joy. Again, why? Because God is the God who constantly begins to, to use people in the most unusual ways to transform his hearts. See, the beauty of our God is he... He uses leaders the world would not to transform hearts, 
in ways that are peculiar. And all of this so that we would come in submission to his strange beauty of it all. The beauty of our God is that he uses leaders the world would not to transform hearts in ways that is peculiar. And all of this calls us to submit to the strange beauty of it all. God calls his church to joyfully submit to the strange leader God puts over them. And in that, they find their joy to joyfully begin to follow their leadership for the end all glory of who our king is so that God receives all the glory. It's all about our king. So in the next several weeks, he's going to talk about defending his apostolic authority to the people of Corinth. Again, this is for their joy. What does it look like to be a leader of Christ? He says, hey, how do you know that I'm a good leader, that I'm not doing it for my own gain, I'm doing it for yours? And he calls them to joyfully find this, the joy in submitting to his leadership. Hard couple three passage, but it's a joyous three passages. As he concludes in chapter 12, that God uses the weak things of the world so that God's grace and power can be ever seen. God, I'm thankful, again, for your scriptures. God, in this church, the only authority we have is your book. So, God, I pray that we would be a church that joyfully submits under your lordship, that we come in obedience to your words, that our lofty opinions would not come, in, come into contradiction with your word, but we see the beauty of it all. God, that you have used strange leaders, including myself, to be able to receive all the glory. So God, be with our church. That you would mold and shape us to be people who are obedient to your word. To that end, that we would leave this place transformed so that when people see us, they see an image of you. And they, they would come to saving faith as well. Be with our church as we proclaim your glory, your son's glory to the nations. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.